0: You're listening to the Bible Teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading today is Psalm 13, beginning in verse 1. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord.
1: So this Lenten season, we are focusing on prayer and how Christians are formed and shaped through it. And what we're doing is we're looking at various psalms throughout the book of Psalms and how they expand our prayer lives giving us language to express our hearts to God in very authentic and very honest and passionate ways in every circumstance of life, words and ways to pray that may even surprise us and shock us a little bit. I remember as early in my Christian years, uh, reading through the Psalms, all the way through the Psalms, one through 150, not in one sitting, but just going through all the Psalms and being constantly shocked and thinking, I didn't know that we're allowed to pray like this. I honestly didn't know you could say things like this to God. I didn't know you could question God. I didn't know you could be so bold. I didn't know you could be so direct. I didn't know you could be so passionate. Sometimes I'm thinking like, this is so irreverent. This is not the concept of approaching God that I had as a, as a child. And the Psalms just welcomed this sort of shocking engagement with God. And I hope that you would capture this as well. And one of the surprising messages of the Psalms is this. You can bring anything to God. You name it. You can bring anything to God. You can bring grief. You can bring your needs. You can bring your anger. You can even bring your doubts. You can bring your fears. You can bring your disappointments. You can bring your resentments. You can bring your secrets. God can handle them. And it's not just that like God is capable of tolerating them, where he's like, oh, another one of those kind of prayers. Oh, okay. But God gives us the psalms so that we have language to, be, to bring them to him. He is welcoming these kinds of prayers. He's giving us sanctified words so that we can offer all of these raw emotions before the Lord in prayer. Today, we are looking at Lament. Lament. And to put it simply, a lament is an expression of grief. What's lament? It means to express grief. It's the cry of the soul before God in prayer. And there's a lot that can be said about lament. There's a lot that's been said about lament. There's a lot that we won't be able to cover about lament today. But what is vital is that we as people and as a church are at least familiar with this theme. And here's why. Because Some Old Testament scholars estimate that about two-thirds of the book of Psalms are laments. So think about it this way. Two-thirds of the ancient Hebrew hymn book are songs of grief, written in minor keys. They're emo songs, sad songs. Two-thirds. As Henry Nouwen put it, I am beginning to see that much of prayer is grieving. What is prayer? Well, a lot of times... It's grieving. It's lamenting. And so in order to align your life with God's word, and in order for us to align our lives and our community with the countless faithful generations before us, lament has to be a part of your prayer life. It's got to be. This is a non-optional thing, and I'm saying this very directly. Lament has to be a a part of your prayer life. And so what I'm doing is I'm choosing Psalm 13 because it has been described as like the model example of lament. In other words, if you're like, hey, Christian, just give it to me simply, give me an example of what a lament is, Psalm 13 would be that example. And as you can see, it's divided. As you look at your Bible, it's divided into three sections, the preacher's dream, amen. So we're gonna look at this under three headings, honest questions, holy complaint, Hopeful confidence. You with me? Okay, let's look first at honest questions. Verses one through two. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? So when I was in high school during PE class, um, I got caught up in a situation where I made the wrong guy very upset. Apparently, I retained that ability into my adult years, by the way. And this guy was a lot older, he was bigger, and he ended up pushing me up against the wall and he pinned me against the wall by my neck. And I remember I couldn't move. I'm one, I'm shocked that this is happening, but also I'm like pinned hard against the wall. And I remember all I could do was sort of turn my head and look in the direction of my friend who was about 10 feet away, and I will never forget it happening. He went like this. We were both smaller, but two on one, we had this guy. And he quite literally turned his face. It's, I probably need therapy about this because like, I'm choked up thinking about this. And he was 10 feet away. I could see him right there, but he felt like a million miles away. To hide your face is an idiom, an Hebrew idiom, and it means to not intervene. To hide your face means to not intervene when you can. And the psalmist is asking, where the heck are you? Clearly, you see what I'm going through here And why are you not intervening? Here we see the agonizing search to discover God in the mess of life when we're experiencing both internal struggle and external struggle. It's the wrestle to understand who God is and what he is up to when life just does not make sense. And the psalmist, who is David, is expressing this through a series of questions, questions, are an important part of lament. Look at at this passage. There are five in this short passage. Five questions directed towards God. Questions are a way for us to express our heart, express our fears, our anguish, our hopes, our doubts, and ultimately to express our desire for God. Now, there may be various reasons why someone wouldn't (laughs) Would not ask questions in their prayer. For some, it's because they think they know everything. Look at people that typically don't ask good questions, it's typically people that think they know everything. Or for some, it may be because deep down they don't want to know the answer. You ever been in one of those situations where you're like, I have a question I want to ask, but I don't want to be responsible for the information that I'm given when I'm given an answer? Or I think more often than not, it's because we can't bear the feeling of not getting an answer to ask the question and then not get the answer that we want. In the 21st century, we do not do very well with unanswered questions. It's been called the curse of the enlightenment. We think that we are entitled to immediate answers. I need answers. What an entitled idea what a privileged idea. Okay, you need answers. Okay. The world stops to give you the answers that you think you need. And let's be honest, we get aggravated when we don't get the clarity that we want. And on top of this, we now today live in what is called the information age, which means we have access to a wealth of information at our fingertips. Practical questions no longer go unanswered. Think about this all previous generations than those represented here today had to deal with that plaguing feeling of not knowing the answer to questions. Who wrote that song? I don't know. Who was that person that wrote that? Who was this? Who was that? When did this happen? When did that happen? All those questions, what do we do? We Google it! And there's about five seconds between that plaguing feeling of not knowing something and then that little rush of dopamine that comes into our body, that's released into our body when we get the answer. And what ends up happening is that we condition ourselves to resist not knowing all the more. We cannot stand that feeling of not knowing the answer. We don't lead lives that give space for unanswered questions or mystery, or like David's case, uncertainty. How many of us are just giving clear space for mystery in our lives? Who among us have like carved out space in our lives for unanswered questions? Jen Pollock-Michelle put it this way, the shift of modernity from the embrace of mystery to the rejection of it has undoubtedly affected our approach to faith. Though the Bible has not changed, I've got some questions right now, though the Bible has not changed, our reading of it has. Listen to these words, It's certainty that we now prize in life with God. Uncertainty we resist. We don't accommodate mystery as well as our ancient and medieval forebears. It's this reason that probably for many of us, we don't naturally pray prayers like Psalm 13 and the other laments that we find in the Psalms. It's probably why they don't naturally, they're not naturally a part of our lives. It's sort of like a foreign language. I experience this, I'm reading through the Psalms, and I'm like, what does that even mean? What are you saying? The Psalms can feel like Latin sometimes. It's like an ancient, obsolete language that does not fit into our modern world, except it very much does. And lament is actually the language that we didn't know we needed. And here's why, because so much of life, whether we like it or not, remains uncertain. Years like the years that we've just experienced recently show us that there are questions that Google nor anyone else can answer. Turns out life is full of mystery, more mystery than we're comfortable with. Even think about this in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is speaking about the final judgment. And Jesus says these words in Mark chapter 13, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Are we more entitled than the incarnate Jesus? Psalm 13 teaches us how to live faithfully and hopefully in the not knowing. And it encourages us to bring those unanswered questions before the Lord. God is not saying, drop your questions. They're not needed here. No, they show us how to bring those questions before the Lord because believing is not opposed to questioning. Let me say that again. Believing is not opposed to questioning. But it's worth mentioning, there are different ways of questioning God. There's the kind that calls into question God's authority. Who are you to do this, God? Who are you to do this? Who are you to tell me how to live? Who are you to determine my life? That's not the kind of questions we're talking about. Or there's the kind that calls into question his ability. What could God even do? Could God even do anything here? That's not the kind of questioning we're talking about here. Or there's the popular modern kind that, the sort of uh, deconstruction kind that calls into question his existence. Can we really know? Can we actually really know? That's not the kind of question we're talking about here either. But there's the, the kind that we find in this psalm and elsewhere in the psalms that relates to God as committed, as personal, and as capable. And I want you to consider these questions because within these very questions that are asked, there's an acknowledgement that God is first committed. Verse one, he says, How long, O Lord? Notice capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is intentional. That is not just the generic name for Lord or God or Almighty. That is the specific covenant name that the Israelites used to relate to their covenant God. These are not random questions just launched into oblivion towards a a random Almighty God. These are directed towards the covenant-keeping, committed God of Israel who has chosen his people and has promised forever to remain faithful to them. So the psalmist knows what we have to know when we pray. That his feeling of distance is not an indication of God's commitment to him. I feel distant from God, but that is not final. My feeling does not determine God's commitment to me. God's covenant, not our limited experience, determines God's faithfulness. Amen? I'm gonna need you with me this afternoon, daylight savings and all. God's covenant, not our limited experience, determines God's faithfulness. But also within these line of questions, the psalmist is also acknowledging that God is personal. Verse three, my God, my God. That's the kind of claim that a child makes about a parent. My mom, my dad, my God, he's relating to the Lord as a child relates to their parent. And if we think about it this way, what kid does not ask their parent, how long? In the car, how long? Waiting for dinner, how long? In time out, how long? In timed reading, How long? For us, us, it's like, Alexa, how much longer on my timer? One minute less than the last time you checked. Kids are waiting for their parents to come home from work. How long, how long, how long? It's a question that every single parent anticipates. And surprisingly, it's the question that our God, my God, welcomes. But also we see in these questions here that the psalmist is acknowledging that God is capable. Think about this. To ask God assumes that he's got the answers. To, ass- to ask God how long the Lord assumes that God is the one who is in control of the timetable and ultimately that he alone has the ability to do something about it. You see, we confront our problems best when we're facing God in prayer. David directs his questions towards the Lord, not his enemy. David directs his questions toward the Lord, not his circumstances. David directs his questions towards the Lord, not even his own mixed emotions, because he knows and ultimately trusts that it's God alone who can deliver. Let me say it this way. Who you bring your questions to reveal who you trust is most capable. As we step back and we consider all of this, what we realize is that these questions aren't being asked to get information. That's the mistake that we make in the 21st century. We want information. They're not asked to get information. There's no indication in the Psalm that God said, I'm glad you asked, let me tell you about it. And they're not even being asked specifically in order to get a changed circumstance. There's no evidence that God has changed his circumstance. The request beneath all of these questions is this, to experience fellowship with God. Here's the, 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 the request beneath all of these questions. What the psalmist is saying is, God, I am desperate for you. God, I need you. My life is a mess. My circumstances are so confusing right now, but I need the kind of clarity that is found in your presence, that's found in abiding in you. The second thing that we see here is holy complaint. Let me put a finer point on it. To lament is to complain. And good news, because I may not be an expert in many things, But this is a topic I can speak into. And knowing this church, this is a topic we know all too well. To lament is to complain. And the psalmist knew something long before modern psychology, and it's this, that it's important, and an important part of your overall health, your spiritual and emotional health, to complain. In fact, there can be negative effects on your life if you bottle things in, if you hold things in. So I read a fascinating article that talked about the health benefits of complaining. And it referenced these studies that were conducted that showed the link between a complaining life and overall happiness in life. Complaining can lead to a happy life, but, As one professor named Robin Kowalski found that not everyone who simply complains is happy. We all know this. We all know complaining people in our lives that are like the antithesis of happy. Not all people that complain are happy, but complaining can lead to happiness. What's the deal? And what she said is this, it's all about making the best choice, knowing when to complain, and here's the point, and to whom. God's not telling you to stop complaining. The question is, who are you complaining to? And we are surrounded by countless people who have not figured this out. People who have experienced agony and angst and fear and sorrow, real stuff in their life, real emotions, but then just don't know what to do with it. So they turn to a number of avenues, like social media. We all follow people like that. Or they just launch their complaints into cyberspace, hoping someone is paying attention. Someone sees them and hears them and affirms their complaint. Or we find those people that hijack conversations, turning otherwise healthy dialogue into these long, continuous rants about God knows what. Or some fire off their complaints against others, finding scapegoats to shoulder responsibility for whatever they're struggling to process in their own lives. And what this psychology professor pointed out is that the most effective kind of complaining happens when the complainer understands who has the authority to do something about it, when to complain and to whom. And this is the point of lament. This is like what I'm trying to get across. The most appropriate avenue for your complaint because you're gonna complain whether you want to or not is in prayer to God. So moment of reflection, where have we been directing our complaints? Who has been our complaint department? I love it, just even in the pews, there's like a little card, I noticed it today. It says, joys and concerns. (laughs) It's a nice way of saying, do you have any complaints? Who are you offering those complaints to? Now, there are examples in the Bible of unholy complaints to God, like the children of Israel when they're wandering in the wilderness and they begin to complain against God. God, we had it better in Egypt. Why'd you bring us out here? Just to kill us so we'd die? I would rather die in slavery in Egypt than out here in the wilderness. What are you doing? Unholy complaint. But a holy complaint recognizes what we have in God and trusts his character and specifically trusts that God hears us and that he cares about us. I think you need to pause and allow the gravity of this thought to sink in. God hears your complaint and he cares infinitely about it. The psalmist says in verse 3, Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Russell Moore, in his book, Adopted for Life, described going to an orphanage in Russia and being in this like strange process of pursuing adoption there years ago. And this is what he writes. He said, of all the disturbing aspects of the orphanage in which we found our boys, one stands out above all others in its horror. It was quiet. The place was filled with an eerie silence, quieter than the Library of Congress, despite the fact that there were cribs full of babies in every room And then he said, if you listened intently enough, you could hear the sound of gentle rocking as babies rocked themselves back and forth in their bed. That's an eerie thought to even have. And what he's saying is that they didn't cry. Babies cry, they didn't cry. And it wasn't because they weren't needy, it wasn't because that there was something wrong with them. They didn't cry because they learned that no one cared enough to listen. And so they stopped. Maybe that's the subconscious reason you've stopped. But I want you to see here that even a simple cry to God Romans 8 would even tell us even an incoherent cry to God. Even a cry that is filled with doubts and confusion is itself an act of significant faith. Even an ugly cry before God is a way for us to hold out hope that God is listening and that he cares. The psalmist goes on to say, Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. This is the kind of prayer that is like desperate for God. What he's saying is, I if you don't intervene, if you don't deliver me, God, if I don't have you, I'm done for. I have no one else. I'm in something that no one else can rescue me from. I'm in a situation that no person nor institute can help me in. I need you. I'm desperate for you. There's something remarkable about desperate prayers, aren't there? We can identify a desperate prayer. Desperate prayers are the kind of prayers that stir our hearts. And it makes me think that maybe we don't see the answer to prayers that we'd wanna see because we don't allow ourselves to get desperate in prayer. Maybe we don't see answers to prayer because we pray safe and small prayers. Why would we pray safe and small prayers? Because it means less disappointment if and when it doesn't happen. Desperate prayers are risky. Desperate prayers hold God to his promises. Desperate prayers put us in a vulnerable place. When in reality, as James tells us in the New Testament, it's the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man that availeth much. It's the bold, ongoing, desperate prayer that brings fruit in our lives. Sometimes I have to go back and read accounts of historic Christian revivals to get me out of a prayer funk maybe you found yourself in one of those before and I was recently reading about the revivals in the Hebrides which is this strange obscure set of islands off the Scottish coast and as uh, I believe it was Duncan Campbell he writes he said one night the people of a small village gathered in the house of a blacksmith crying out to God to revive his people In other words, they were complaining to God about the current state of the church and asking God to arouse them and awaken them. And as he describes, the prayer was quiet, like the prayer was just kind of like dead. So he started calling on people, brother, would you pray for us? And he said, one man, one member prayed a quote, short and sharp prayer. And he prayed this, oh God, You made a promise to pour out water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. And Lord, it's not happening. Lord, I do not know how these other men stand with you, but if I know my own heart, I know that I'm thirsty. And you promised to pour out water on him who is thirsty. And if you do not do it, how can I ever believe you again? Your honor is at stake You are a covenant-keeping God. Fulfill your covenant engagement. See what he's doing? He's doing what the psalmist does. You are a covenant God. You are more committed than I could ever be. Fulfill your promise. Fulfill your promise. And he says, the house shook like in the book of Acts. The presence of God filled the community and revival broke out men and women in the middle of the night started coming out of their house, being drawn, strangely drawn to gather and seek the Lord, and they didn't know what was going on. God was stirring the heart of their community through desperate prayer. The prayer of David in the Psalm, the prayer of this person in the prayer meeting, it wasn't so much, fix my situation. That's where we stop in our prayer. God, fix my situation. Now he goes a step further. He says, God, preserve your reputation. It's not just my life here that's being threatened. It's your honor that's at stake. For your namesake, God, for your namesake, fulfill. That's the mark of a holy complaint. For time's sake, let's move to our last point. I thought this was going to be simple today. Goodness, time change. Let's look finally at hopeful confidence, looking at verses five through six. But I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he's dealt bountifully with me. This is an extremely important determination, one that every single believer who is going to endeavor to lament must make. And this is what he says. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. What he is saying is this. My trust is not depending on answers to my questions. Here are my questions, but if you don't answer them, I'm still gonna trust you. And what he's saying is my trust is not depending on a change in my circumstances. If I remain in this situation, God, I'm still gonna trust you. What David is saying is that my trust is now depending upon your steadfast love. The word here in the Hebrew as hesed, it means loyal, steadfast, unfailing love. My experience is going to ebb and flow. I'm going to be up and down. But God's love, it's going to remain the same. And this is the most spiritually and emotionally stabilizing thing that we can get into our hearts. God's love never changes. The psalmist expresses his emotions, but he chooses not to trust them. Why? Because emotions are real, they're just not final. And while emotions persist, they're not unfailing. And while every single one of us should pay attention to our emotions, you should never trust them as ultimate. Lament is where we open our hearts before the Lord and we let it all out. It's like, sorry for the crude example, it's like throwing up. Once your head's in the toilet... Just let it all out. There's no point in holding back at that point. Once you start lamenting, just let it all out. We, we open ourselves before the Lord, but here's the deal. We have to stay open long enough for him to fill the void because if we don't, something else will. We'll let out our emotions. We'll let out our rant. We'll let out our complaint, and then something will come along to fill that void. So this is what the psalmist is showing us. We exhale our feelings, but we inhale God's truth. We exhale our words in prayer, but we inhale his trustworthy scriptures. We exhale our subjective experience, but then we inhale God's eternal character. This is the only way that our sorrow is going to be transformed into praise. Which, by the way, is the kind of deliverance that David needed most. We see the deliverance that David was praying for being answered in the psalm right before us. Despair is being transformed into hope for God. His situation hasn't changed, but his heart has. There's no promise that your situation changes today. But God promises to transform our lives and transform our hearts. And this is how. He says, "'My heart shall rejoice in your salvation.'" David has laid his soul bare before the Lord. He's all up in his fields, but he does not allow his heart to remain untethered. He attaches it to the hope of salvation, which is what we must do as well. How do we do that for the Christian? We do this by tethering our hearts to the salvation that is provided for us in God's only Son, Jesus Christ. When we fear that we have been abandoned, when we're struggling with, you know, to believe that God hears us and that he cares, when we are drowning in unanswered questions in our lives, we've got to look to the cross of Jesus Christ. And as we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, we've got to come close enough to listen to Jesus's own prayer of lament. I'm not inviting you into anything that Jesus was unwilling to go into first. Did you know Jesus lamented? Jesus prayed prayers of lament? As Jesus hung on the cross, Matthew records this. In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, here's the question. Why have you forsaken me? So what are we hearing? We're hearing Jesus praying the Psalms. What are we hearing? We're hearing Jesus asking unanswered questions. What are we hearing? We're hearing Jesus lamenting the pain of rejection. Jesus is literally experiencing the Father's face being turned away. Jesus is being abandoned in death and abandoned in wrath and judgment for the sake of our sin and salvation. So that for the child of God, the one who trusts in Jesus so that we would never be rejected. Think about it this way, Jesus was pinned against the wall. Jesus was pinned against the cross with no intervention in our place so that we could receive the embrace of God. And now for the Christian, we too can offer a prayer of lament But as we offer this prayer of lament, like Psalm 13 and the other laments that we see in the scripture, we can pray it with hopeful confidence that God will never reject us. God will never abandon us. God will never forsake us. For as Paul tells us in Romans chapter eight, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the hope that we have and that anchors us as we offer our laments and we offer our questions to God. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. He will always intervene. Amen? God, we thank you for...